Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Hi friends, this is Engage 360 with Denver Seminary. I wanna let you know that this episode we're about to air is on some rather sensitive material and I want you to know that in advance in case uh, this might be a little difficult. We're gonna be talking about uh, stress, particularly childhood and teenage stress, um, that is kind of a widespread phenomenon. And hope this will be a really helpful conversation to you. But just want to let you know that uh, it's a it's a heavy subject, and we want uh, want you to uh, be able to engage this conversation in a way that's going to be helpful and not hurtful to you. We're glad you're with us. My name is Don Payne. I'm your host. And we have a variety of conversations about important issues related to how we engage the needs of the world with the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of Scripture. That's our mission here at Denver Seminary. There was a time when the word trauma was associated primarily with maybe particular groups of people who had endured specific or extreme experiences, for example, military combat veterans with PTSD. And trauma, for all I know, may have been very widespread, but as far as many people were concerned, it was an unusual experience for a minority population who had undergone something unusually devastating. But in only a a few years' time, it seems, uh, all that has changed to the point that trauma of some sort is a pretty widespread and crippling phenomenon. In some ways, it's altered or intensified the landscape of ministry for pastors, for therapists, for others whose ministries never really took this into consideration. Now, one of the groups or the demographics whose trauma seems increasingly to have surfaced is students, teens. Uh, Their parents, their teachers, their church leaders, maybe also their peers and others in their lives find themselves scrambling to know how to help, and perhaps they're even somewhat traumatized themselves by all of this. And once again, we're honored, uh, delighted, in fact, to have with us one of our colleagues, Dr. Adam Wilson from our counseling faculty. Welcome, Adam. Thank you. Adam is here to interact with us about this and provide some perspective and some guidance because Adam is the director of our school counseling program here at Denver Seminary, and we're really uh, honored and grateful for all the expertise he he brings to this subject of trauma, particularly as we want to focus today, uh, trauma as students uh, and schools uh, experience that. So get us started, Adam. Um, maybe describe trauma in general. I know from uh, some conversation you and I have had previously and even before we started recording, uh, you you were talking about how trauma is a is a really broad category, but br- bring some um, some contours to that, some specificity to what we're talking about or what we ought to be talking about when we use that word trauma. Yeah, no, I think it's a great place to start. So trauma is a term, yeah, that's getting used a lot more frequently out in maybe the kind of the common vernacular. It's something that um, many of us use somewhat casually, like, oh, that was traumatic when we're in like a traffic jam. Um, when we, in the same way, we'll use other terms as kind of hyperbole, just a way to describe or emphasize our discomfort or annoyance or whatever it might be. 
Um, but when we really talk about the, the true definition of trauma, from you can look at it from a clinical perspective, um, and I think that's how many clinicians would identify it as it's a diagnosis. It's, it's post-traumatic stress disorder, so PTSD. So we'd say there's this category, but then there's even conversations among uh, clinicians of like, well, that category doesn't quite encompass everything we see because it's a way to understand particular um, kind of criteria that help us identify when someone is struggling with uh, stress responses after a traumatic event. Um, but there's also the question of what do you do for folks who grow up in a, in a chronically stressful environment, say an abusive or neglectful environment, where there's not just an event that was traumatic, but their entire kind of existence was one of high stress and almost like if you take, for example, um, kids growing up in Ukraine right now, like even if they didn't experience bombing or warfare directly in their, their vision or their hearing, their entire childhood now is being defined by this level of heightened uh, awareness and, and stress. So the trauma gets kind of spread out over yeah. over a long uh-huh. period of time. Mm-hmm. And so we call that complex trauma. It okay. could be like multiple traumatic events. It could be a chronic environment of you know, neglect or a lack of resources. It could be something where there's um, you know, a parent who's just sub-functioning in their own mental health for years. And so there's a level of emotional detachment and, and not a purposeful neglect, but just they're, they're not able to be present. Um, it could be substance abuse. Like there can be all sorts of things that can go in that won't as cleanly fit the criteria of like a singular event leading to a set of reactions that we would call PTSD. So clinically, it's, it's somewhat complicated, but we could, we could easily say, easily, maybe not easily, but we could say that PTSD is... Um, very identifiable and it is very trackable, but trauma is a little bit harder to define in and of itself because what you have is in, in a basic definition is trauma is when a person's resources, their coping skills, their support systems, whether that's internally, kind of like their biological ability to regulate their response to things, or it could be the system around them being able to support them as they go through a recovery process after a difficult event or a situation. When the event, the stress overwhelms a person's ability to cope or their ability to manage that stress, that would be what we would call either crisis or trauma. Now, the long-term effects of that would be something else. That's when we talk about someone being traumatized, right? We'd say, okay, so there are consequences to having gone through a trauma but when the environment is traumatic, meaning it is damaging in and of itself for a long period of time, the traumatized result, those symptoms are, are going to look different and they're going to vary quite considerably depending on the person. Um, so we could have somebody who most of us would say, let's say you see September 11th happen, if you're old enough to have been around when that happened. You see this on TV or you see this in person. There's not many people who were not negatively affected in some way that left a mark, left a long-term mark. You know, older generations like JFK being assassinated or whatever it is. There's these generational events that you could say we were all negatively affected. We were impacted by it. And so on one level, you could say that we were traumatized because we don't know how to manage something of that scale or that intensity. Um, But when we look at the personal and we say, okay, but when somebody has been sexually abused – 
or has been physically abused or they've been in a car crash and, you know, we're uh, nearly. That's much more isolated and specific. Exactly. It's contained. It's kind of discreet. Now, it can spill over in all sorts of areas of life, but it's 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 identifiable as opposed to some of these things that are a little bit more insidious and you could maybe define it. Uh, but it will be harder to pinpoint precisely why you feel or react the way you do in a given moment. Yeah, that um, that makes me want to ask about, I don't know if this is a category, but like secondhand trauma. Is, yeah. that, a, is that a thing? Because when I, when I think about um, lots of students today who seem to be struggling, I shouldn't say seem to be, who are in fact struggling with mm-hmm. uh, something traumatic, some something related to trauma. You know, we think about their fear of school shootings. Uh, it seems that in many of these instances, they're not reacting to anything that they have personally witnessed or experienced, but they're reacting to something they know about, mm-hmm. something that's kind of spread across the culture that is somehow traumatizing them, though not 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 directly and personally through a particular event. Is that yes, yeah? And so that thing? I, it is a very uh, very important thing. So it's called vicarious trauma. Okay, yeah, okay. vicarious trauma or secondary trauma. So this is something counselors, doctors, um, pastors, any anybody who's going to be in direct contact with people, hearing the stories, seeing the after effects of circumstances, can walk away with. Uh, heightened stress responses themselves that aren't because they visually saw it or it happened to them directly. Um, but um, I had a, of a friend who I worked with at a previous uh, organization, and he talked about as a counselor, he said, you know, if I was a, if I was a garbage man, at least I could go home and wash it off. And, no. and it's that yeah. recognition. There's some stuff that this sticks with you. And while you can't say you're as negatively as affected as the person who directly experienced it, there's almost a, a residual um, kind of impact, this overall kind of stressing on the system's ability to cope with the darkness, the heaviness, the hurt, the pain, the evil, yeah. whatever it might be that, that you experience. Over well, now, now, thinking about those who are on the front lines in the lives of, of students, in this case, uh, who are experiencing um, a lot of trauma, and they may not be trained clinicians, but they're still in the front lines in the lives of, of these uh, young adults. Um, it, does that make it more difficult, more slippery, more elusive to, to deal with it when it's spread out like that, when it's vicarious? I think in some ways there's maybe two things there. Um, and maybe a way to relate to it is if you see someone who is maybe 78 and they have leukemia, it's very hard and it's very devastating, uh, but there's a, a level of almost expectation of like normality to that stage of life having serious health threats. And so if, to see an older person going through that while very um, upsetting and hurtful and sad, there isn't necessarily the same level of like um, mental revolt against the idea that if you see an eight-year-old who has leukemia, yeah. there's something just wrong about that. And I think when we when we talk about people that work with youth and they see kids being damaged by various circumstances, situations, it could be outright evil against them, things like sexual abuse. It could be the, just the natural unfortunate parts of living in a broken world, so a parent dying or... Um, you know, an older sibling um, killing themselves or 
uh, even having a school shooting um, that occurs, and it's not that the the child was maybe even there, but having like I've had clients who were not there when school shootings took place, but the fact that they weren't there left them feeling very very guilty and very very yeah survivor trans- guilt yeah survivor guilt. So we look at that idea of like the the impact of being the support system for little ones who are hurting in a way that I just think our minds aren't wanting to accept that this is possible or that this can happen because we do everything we can in, in the best parts of society to protect kids. And so when they can't be protected or they aren't or something happens, there's something uniquely disturbing about that. They can have a cumulative effect for caregivers uh, where if you don't have the ability to kind of recalibrate, do your own kind of processing, your own work to recognize that you're not a superhero. You don't have infinite capacity to just absorb other pain, other people's pain, especially little one's pain. I mean, parents maybe know this. You're not, you can't emotionally regulate when your toddler's throwing a tantrum forever. At a certain point, you start to lose a bit of your emotional control and you need to tap out and hopefully you have somebody else who can kind of step in is you need a break. You need to go for a walk. You need to go do something because it, it has a cumulative impact on your own stress system, right? Your own stress response. We're not impervious to that. And I think it's just that with kids, it's all the more potent when we see little ones hurting. I think that affects us because we have that instinct to, to swoop in when we see a, a powerless human or even, frankly, even creatures. We see little animals being hurt. We want to help, right? The best parts of society want to swoop in there and, and take care of that hurt. And when we can't, there's something really, I think, disturbing and bothersome about that. Um, I do want to back up for a second, if I can, okay. yeah. camp on that stress response for a second. Because when you look at the term trauma, what we're talking about is actually kind of the neurological system's response, kind of the fight or flight reaction. But it's not always as, as extensive as if, you know, like you come across a bear uh, on the trail. You're going to have a very large scale reaction where it truly is life or death, kind of a moment where you're making decisions and you're reacting in a way that that determines some permanent outcomes. Um, There's that level. But when we think of it as that system is also the same system, the one that kind of activates that that arousal level, is the same system that you use to get out of bed in the morning. It's the same Mm -hmm. system that you use to have this kind of conversation. It's what keeps you alert. It's what keeps you concentrated. It's what keeps you engaged. So when we look at that throughout the day, if it's kind of like a teeter-totter between rest and activity in, in kind of your nervous system, Activity can be just basic, kind of the normal everyday things that you go about, um, but it can also be the farther down. I always picture it as a teeter totter. Yeah. Right. As the teeter totter goes down farther onto that that activity side, that activation side, we get closer and closer to those heightened responses. Where if the teeter totter is all the way down, that's that fight or flight reaction. Well, trauma. In, in the sense of like PTSD is when that teeter totter is to all, some degree all the way down. Yeah, or yeah. stuck most of the way down and it just doesn't rebalance, right? Or it's easily knocked down there more easily than average knocked down into that reaction. So when you think of it as a stress response and you think of the ability to kind of regulate in the face of of very stressful experiences, you start to maybe understand that the concept of trauma is a little harder to peg in a neat little category because for one child, they might not have the internal regulation skills. It might be biologically they, they struggle with that. Like their system is automatically running a little faster because they have anxiety. It could be because their environment hasn't really taught them skills. 
could be because they live in a place where they're just higher levels of risk. You know, they live in an urban context where there's more neighborhood violence. So they just run with a higher level. That idea of trauma then becomes um, a longer term ability to function well, to regulate when you're not in threat. Okay. But if your system's used to always functioning in that aroused state, that's really hard to do when all of a sudden you're sitting in class or you're sitting in church and you're being asked to sit or someone's challenging you on like, hey, you need to be quiet, you need to sit still, or you need to pay attention to whatever it is that we're doing, and their system is on some level ready to fight a bear, then all of a sudden their capability is going to be very, very impaired, but it won't be obvious that they're maybe saying having a flashback of okay. you know, like a war memory, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. we kind of picture okay. with PTSD okay. often. So, yeah, again, thinking about um, those uh, parents – Pastors, uh, peers, th- those who are kind of in in, in the front seat with mm-hmm. the lives of uh, students who are are experiencing some kind of trauma that's really affecting their lives, whether they are able to pinpoint what it's from or not, um, and with students themselves, how, how do we how do we help them understand um, a little bit more about what's going on? Mm-hmm. Uh, with them so that we can interact with them in helpful ways. Yeah. So the the first thing we have to start with is the fact that children by default will do the best they can. That's kind of a phrase kid counselors will use. Children will do the best that they can. So if a kid's not doing well in a given moment, the first question should be, why are they not doing well? It's Assume, not, assuming they're doing the best they can. Yeah. Assuming the best they can. That this, may be a big change for a lot of people to assume I, that. I think it might be because we, we have this idea of, um, for example, kids being manipulative. You know, if, if you come across a kid, it seems to be really gaming the system and trying to work. And even if they're little, I, I've always had problems with that term being applied to kids because, yes, they might be trying to work the system, but you need to ask the question, why? Why would they need to work the system? Why do they feel the need to work the system at that age? Right. Kids don't have the capacity cognitively and even like socially, their social awareness to really like look at you and be like, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to get you to do exactly what I want. They're not they're going by instinct. Their instinct, if their instinct is to kind of game the system and lie and kind of maneuver, you really need to pause before you react to that, because anybody's going to react to that. At least I will. I don't like it when people try to manipulate me like I'm going to react pretty negatively internally. But I have to stop and ask that question. Why would they do that? Like, why would that be necessary for them in their mind, in their, their little system to do that? If a kid's acting out in class, this is where kind of trauma-informed education has started to really make big uh, kind of movement in how teachers approach this. And, and I think the same thing could be applied to kind of youth pastoring or uh, early education, whatever it is that you're looking at. Um, you have to recognize that we need to stop as the adults and ask, why would this kiddo be acting the way that they're acting right now. Now, we might not have an obvious answer, but if they're acting in a way that is, quote unquote, antisocial, meaning not going in line with what we would hope or what would be typical for their age in that context, there's a reason. Now, well, and, and even even that's a, a considerable shift mm. um, simply to recognize that. I mean, that's gonna, that alone is going to change mm-hmm. reactions to realize simply, not maybe it's not simple, but but simply to realize that there is a reason. Mm-hmm. There, there's something behind yeah. the the behavior, 
whether whether that is depression or outbursts or mm-hmm. it could be it could be also if we think developmentally for some kids they grew up in a context where they were never um, taught how to regulate their emotions or to interact in an appropriate way to to seek out what they need if they grew up in a context where there was you know it's kind of dangerous to reach out to the adults and ask for help because the reaction would be very volatile in response then they've learned how to go under the radar and kind of work the system to get what they need. That's survival. That's just smart, right? That's not manipulative. That's just good strategy. Um, and I think, so when we look at that idea of, of how do we identify what the kiddo is needing, it might not be very obvious. They're not going to be able to tell you often why they're acting the way they're acting. You know, I just need more love at home. That's why I'm throwing pencils at this kid next to me. You know, they're not going to be able to, to manage it because that's, again, cognitively complex connecting those dots. So some of it might be they never learned the skills. Some of it might be something like depression or anxiety or, you know, outright a, tra- a traumatic event or events in their life that have led to dysregulation of their system where they're kind of in that semi-fight or flight all the time. When we look at it, they are lacking something developmentally, regardless of the root cause, if it's a child what the, res- or I'm sorry, what the uh, resolution, what the, the solution out of the scenario is, is developmental. They need skills. They need progress. Maybe they've never had modeling. They've never seen anybody regulate emotions. In their family, everybody was just blasted out or shut down. Like no one ever really faced uncomfortable things and started to work through them. So when we look at the idea of like, what, what do we need to do? We need to stop before we react, before we discipline, before we structure. Not saying those things aren't needed, but before we do it, we need to stop and think, okay, if this is coming from a source other than this kid just being willful and just not wanting to obey, which again, you can have kids that are fairly strong-willed, but before you jump on the, the kind of discipline bandwagon or like blaming it on just behavior, is saying, why would that behavior exist? Why would that kid think that's the best way or feel that's the best way to get what they need? Okay. Now, you, you seem to be referring mostly to younger children, um, mm-hmm. thinking also of teens, mm-hmm. high school students. Anything different there? Because that, that, as far as I know, is a fairly widespread phenomenon now. Yeah. We have lots and lots of uh, high school teen uh, students who are experiencing pretty crippling, disorienting forms of trauma based on a lot of things, what they see going on in the world, you know, the reality and the, or the prospect of school shootings, mm-hmm. things like that, how, how do we help them? So I think you wanna, I want, would want to back up a little bit on that and say, okay, so if we take what we know about the little ones and we say we need to pause and ask why would they do that, part of what you're referencing off of is what's developmentally typical. Mm-hmm. So if you picture that kind of bell-shaped curve of behaviors or emotional regulation skills, because if you have like, my two-year-old at home, I'm not going to hold her to the same standard of emotional regulation that I do my 10-year-old. Um, at moments, they maybe act the same, <laughs> but it doesn't mean that they have the same capacity, the same yeah. capability. And so in the same way, we can look at our teenagers and say, okay, from a developmental lens, like what's normal? What's kind of bell-shaped curve? What would, what would I expect them to be capable of doing? And if you've worked with teenagers, you know that there are moments where they are four-year-olds. And then they're 40 the next minute and like brilliantly wise. It's, it's, there's Swiss cheese. And so their capabilities, they have the capability. They just aren't always consistent. In it. And so we can say, okay, so if I see a kid who was functioning a certain way and all of a sudden something changed and now they've lost 
capacity that they used to have. Same thing with like a little one. They had potty training down and all of a sudden like they've lost it completely or like sleep patterns. And it's not like a developmentally normal sleep regression or potty regression like, you know, during kindergarten, lots of kids have potty regressions because this new world's taking all their developmental energy. So they stop paying attention to the bladder. So there's that part. But when you see something that is kind of established, this kid had this ability and now they don't. We can start to gain some insight into what we'll see at different developmental stages. So for like a teenager, we would say, yes, pushing for independence, kind of wanting to be with friends, um, the idea of um, gaining that sense of who I am and what I'm capable of and what I can achieve and what are my goals. We, we would see that typically. And sometimes that can involve pushing off of parents, being a little rebellious or uh, just the grumpy mood swings that come. But if you look at what's normal, you'd say, okay, that, you know, that's pretty typical teenage stuff. But if you see the extremes, you see excessive substance use, high-risk sexual activity, massive sleep changes where, again, all teenagers shift in their sleep. But if it's a really drastic shift that lasts more than a couple of weeks, those, those kinds of things where you start to say, like, that's not normal for that kid and probably not all that typical for kind of bell-shaped curve, that age group. We can start to see identifying some of the things that maybe are kind of red flags. What I would say is, is there is something that is maybe a trend that research is starting to point towards with current kind of adolescents, young adults, is that the, the current generation seem to be struggling with coping with uncomfortable negative emotional states. So like being sad, lonely, um, the feeling of failure, like these kind of things that are maybe pretty typical experiences in life. This generation seems to be having a greater difficulty um, not falling or collapsing underneath the weight of those experiences. And so we, this is part of like we talked about in previous podcasts related to suicidality. Part of why we've seen some spikes in suicidality, they think, is connected to this kind of a shortage in coping skills, a shortage okay. in, in uh, what we call discomfort or distress, distress tolerance. Um, and so we look at that generationally. If we go back to what we were talking about with little kids, if they never developed it, we can't really blame the kid for not being able to cope when something happens. So the idea of increased trauma doesn't necessarily mean there are more traumatic events happening to kids now than there ever have been. But they're experiencing it, feeling it differently? Yeah. They're, okay. they, I think their ability to manage the stresses of life yeah. is compromised. And so we're seeing kids struggling more with things that we would, you know, we would say that's connected to trauma. But again, back to what we said at the beginning, trauma is very subjective. It's, it's something that's traumatic to you might not be traumatic to me and vice versa. And so you have, that's always been true. But right now I might be able to look at a kid and be like, well, you got de-pantsed in front of the cafeteria. Like that's super embarrassing. I get that. But, you know, it's middle school. For you, maybe you walk away from that and you not, aren't truly traumatized, but it's embarrassing. You are, you know, in front of your friends as a middle schooler, like that's just horrifying. Some kids might turn around, punch their friend in the arm and later on be laughing about it. Um, another kid, that might be the source of an eating disorder. That might be the source of social anxiety disorder. And so you'd say, was that traumatizing to them? Yeah. Was the event something that everybody would categorize as what they call like a capital T trauma, like September 11th? No, probably not. But for that person, it had the lasting impact where it dysregulated them on a long-term okay. scale. Okay. How, how do we then help students deal with this, help them face this, help them, for example, feel safe 
when I, I keep going back to uh, just the phenomenon of school shootings, I don't want to make it all about that, but but that is a cultural phenomenon mm-hmm. that is traumatizing in some ways, lots and lots of teens. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably the, the very necessary act of having active shooter drills uh, keeps that prospect high in their attention yeah. categories. And just how, how do we help them feel safe? How do we help them deal with all of this, uh, yeah. regardless of what, what we might assess in terms of um, the reality or not of or the or the um, the severity mm. the level of severity of the trauma so there's there's something in this that there's the idea of preparation um, and it, when you work with anxiety in general and if we look at a trauma response you're, you're really talking about anxiety when you're talking about uh, somebody who is traumatized because if if you go through um, you know, if I lost my wife, I would be in a state that would look very much like somebody who has PTSD in that moment. I, I would lose my ability to cope. I would not be functioning well at all. My cognitive, emotional, physiological systems would just be a mess. Over time, you would expect to see me kind of gradually moving forward from that and gaining back some of those resources with support and just kind of hard work and, and just time. Um, those things would be there. But when we talk about trauma, something continues on perpetually. And it has to do with that anxiety and that kind of stress response that becomes more of a permanent feature, semi-permanent feature of, of how that person copes with the world or functions in the world. So when we look at that, when you're dealing with trauma, what you're ultimately dealing with is how do we manage anxiety? And that's going to be a physical thing, a cognitive thing, a spiritual thing. Like That's a holistic process. So when we look at how do we help somebody who's in that state, and you look at kids right now, Part of what we have to do is recalibrate cognitively the risk ratios. So after a traumatic event, your brain is going to up the chances. You say, like, well, that thing happened. And so, therefore, it's very likely it's going to happen again. Right? So if, you get, if you've ever been in a fender bender, you know, the next time you come to a stoplight. You think you're going to get hit. Yeah, you look in the yep. mirror, right? So your brain is assessing if it happened to me, it could happen again because the ratios went up. I, the probability gets reset after a traumatic event. Or for example, if a kid is, you know, there's a school shooting in the Denver metro area, it wasn't at their school, but all of a sudden their brain says, that could happen. Or they have an active shooter drill and their brain's like, man, this could be like, what if this was real? And the brain is part of the brain is saying like, this is, this is potentially gonna happen. So some folks, their brain will say it's almost guaranteed it's going to happen. And that's where they're going to start to respond out of a, a kind of traumatic or avoidant kind of a reaction to that idea as it would, as you should, if you thought that was likely to happen. So ultimately, if you say, okay, every time I run on this trail, I run into a rattlesnake. Every time, like I've gone six times, and there's a rattlesnake every time. The probabilities of running into a rattlesnake on that trail are near a hundred percent, right? But if it happened one time, and you've gone 20 other times and it's never been there again, except for that one time, your brain might still say, nope, 100% chance because you're deathly afraid of rattlesnakes. And, and so ultimately what we have to say is helping people recalibrate the risks. So for school shootings. Think, think about it more objectively. Mm-hmm. Think about it more objectively. Try to get as much fact checking as you can on the yeah. thing. What are the chances of a school shooting? Well, here's where the media has kind of messed us up is there really aren't more school shootings now than there have ever been. Okay, the trends aren't really that much higher than they used to be. The difference is every single one of them is reported and extensively 
talked about for a long time. So it makes it seem like it's more prevalent. Exactly. So we're seeing rattlesnakes every day. Not thankfully, not every day, but more, far more often. So our brains are saying this is, this is almost a guaranteed thing. Like this is normative. This is going to happen. Okay. Same thing with suicide rates. Suicide rates have increased over time. Um, but what we have found is that the, the idea of it becomes lodged in our brain because it is such an awful thing. Becomes normalized. Becomes normalized. Yeah. Okay. So ultimately what we want to do is partly recalibrate what's possible, what's likely uh, versus what's possible. So could it happen? Yes, it could happen. It does happen. Is it likely to happen? No, it is not likely to happen. The chances of a school shooting in a school are astronomically low. Yet, do we need to be prepared for it? Similar to like when you go on a plane, you know, a water landing. What are the chances of a water landing when you're flying in the continental U.S.? Extraordinarily low, but it could happen. So we prepare. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's like the difference between living with paranoia and precautions. Yes. Or yes. living with precautions, mm-hmm. but not paranoia. Exactly. So we need to rate our response, or I'm sorry, base our response off of the probabilities. And helping kids and parents and, and youth workers know that in the same way how we treat an active shooter drill, how we interact with students during an active shooter drill, do we really need to have people with fake guns running around, uh, setting off fireworks and knocking on doors really loudly and shaking doors in an elementary school? No, we do not need to be doing that. And research is showing that's not a good idea. Do we need to have kids know the process and the flow of what they need to do if there's some kind of an emergency where they need to be quiet in the room and then they need to make their way out in an orderly fashion? Yes. We've been doing fire drills for decades and decades. Without simulating fires. Without simulating fires. And what research has shown is that preparation actually does decrease the effects of trauma afterwards. If you were in a, a school shooting and a kid does what they were trained to do, even if there's still going to be negative effects of having been in that situation, they will be lower because the child's brain knew I did what I was supposed to do. I couldn't control that other stuff, but I did what I could control. And that sense, just that bit of like I used the tools I was trained to do is protective. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And, there, and there's some empowering as well in, mm-hmm. in simply knowing what to do, knowing that you have something to do rather than feeling utterly Perplexed and helpless. And this is key when you talk about helping kids. So another crucial thing to talk about is what they call postvention. So you have prevention, you have intervention in the moment, you have postvention. So after there's suicide, a shooting, a death in the family, like some traumatic event has occurred, what we do after the fact is going to have a significant impact on the long-term impacts of going through that. So for example, if there's been a death, uh, and it doesn't always have to be death. It could be divorce, could be loss. And this is why counseling is really key in a lot of ways is if we can, in that time after it has happened, equip the child with some sense of control over what they can do, it will reduce that sense of kind of chaotic uncertainty, that sense of threat. And they walk forward a little bit more. And it's, again, it's not yeah, going to get that, rid of that's, everything. That, that's really huge. Just having that sense of control. Mm-hmm. Uh, is is of massive importance, yeah. whether that's in training, giving them something that they know they can do, know mm-hmm. they are supposed to do, mm-hmm. uh, or even having kind of a, an interpretive narrative, knowing where to put something. Yeah. And it, it gives a sense of control. Absolutely. I mean, it can be as simple as like if, if, a, um, if a kiddo is going through a loss, like a, a divorce, right? Their parents are getting a divorce and this is, re- and maybe it's a really conflicted divorce and it's really unsettling for them. 
to give them a place where they have full control over how they process their emotions in a way. And that's how therapy, you know, can really help. Counseling helps that way, but it doesn't have to be that. It could be sitting with a, a youth pastor. It could be sitting with um, just a trusted mentor or aunt and uncle or whoever it is. If they can have somebody say to him like, yeah, no, what you're feeling is absolutely normal. And that totally makes sense. Just to hear that like, what I'm not crazy. Like, yeah, no, that is, that is hard. And then there's a period at the end of that sentence. I call it emotional grammar. <laughs> so there's a period at the end of that sentence. The next sentence is, you're going to be able to make it through this, and I'm with you as you go through that. They need to know that what they feel is happening. That's not, they're just not weak or like something's wrong with them. They're feeling like, yeah, nope, you're right. This is not the way it should be. This is horrible. Uh, this is devastating, period. You're going to make it through this, and I'm going to be alongside you as you do it. Okay. That gives them that balance of like, I'm okay in the sense that like, I'm not weird or I'm not completely losing it. And there is a path forward, yeah. even if I can't really feel it yeah. right now. The two biggest gifts we can give. Mm. Yeah. To mm-hmm. normalize it, give them, give them a path forward. Yep. Um, before we end, Adam, any, any good resources you'd recommend to people um, either for their own experience or for trying to walk well alongside yeah. others? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a few things I would I would recommend. There's the uh, Child Trauma and Stress Network. You can just Google that. Child Trauma and Stress, stress Network is a group out there that has collected a lot of information about what stress and trauma can do and what we can do to help uh, kids specifically with that. And when they say child, they're talking child adolescent as well. That's okay. going to include the whole thing. And there's also childtrauma.org, which there's a great researcher out there, Bruce Perry, who's done a lot of work. Uh, on the effects of trauma on you know child development, neurodevelopment, things like that. That's a great resource for people to get uh, kind of connected to. Um, he also has um, the uh, nctsn.org. So that's nctsn.org. There's an academy where you can get free classes online to understand more about trauma mm, in, in the child population. And then lastly, I'd say, uh, well, actually maybe two things. There's one for Substance Abuse Mental Health Administration, so S-A-M-H-A. They have a suicide and after-suicide toolkit. And I think this is something that, referencing in previous podcast, people don't as often recognize the effect of a suicide on future risk for mm-hmm. kids that are traumatized mm-hmm. going through that. So what we do post-vention uh, after a suicide of another kid in school, a friend, a family member, it doesn't matter. What we do afterwards makes a big difference in helping them again, like we were talking about, move forward uh, well. Uh, I think those would be some good resources for people to start yeah, with. Yeah, thanks for those. Mm-hmm. Really helpful. Mm-hmm. Dr. Adam Wilson, always a pleasure to interact with you and draw on your, your vast experience and expertise with these things. And um, hope and pray that this will be of benefit to lots and lots of folks who listen to this and maybe spread the word. Thanks Absolutely. again. Yeah. Glad to be here. Friends, thanks for spending time with us. This has been Engage 360 from Denver Seminary. We hope you will find us again really soon and uh, benefit from a lot of the other conversations we have. I uh, want to encourage you to uh, contact us if you would care to do so. You can email us at podcast at denverseminary.edu. Uh, check out our seminary website. Just denverseminary.edu for lots of good resources, uh, particularly if you're interested in studying with us in some fashion uh, residentially here uh, on the Littleton campus in Washington, D.C. or on our global online campus. We would love to interact with you about how we can help help equip you for whatever ministry God uh, has you in or has for you in the future. 
Uh, until we talk to you again, uh, may the Lord uh, keep you and encourage you and help you by his spirit be uh, a really faithful and effective companion in the lives of others. Take care.